Well, it's our joy as we get to gather to pray as a people. And if I'm understanding right, Andrew and Jalen, this is your last Sunday with us before you go off to flight training? Great. So we can keep you two in our prayers. Uh, With that, we can go to our God together. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father, your word, it speaks the truth. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. And you've proclaimed to us in your word. You have said, I am the Lord and besides me there is no savior. I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn back? I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. It is true that you are the God of salvation and it is our joy to worship you. And so, Father, we marvel at you. We marvel at the plan you made before the foundation of the world, how you chose a people for salvation. And Jesus, we marvel at you and all of your accomplishments We marvel at your incarnation. We marvel at your ministry. We marvel at your cross. We marvel at your resurrection. We marvel at what you accomplished, how you bruised the head of the serpent, how you atoned for our sins, how you tasted death for all of us. And Spirit, we marvel at your gracious work. You have taken all that belongs to Jesus and you've brought it near to our hearts. You've awakened us from our death sleep of sin. You've brought new life to us. You've given us faith. You've united us to the Son of God. So it is our joy to praise you and lift you high in our hearts. And we cry out to you as your word teaches us in the book of Revelation. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is our joy to repeat those words You alone are the worker of redemption. You and you alone. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And we come as your gathered and covenanted people. In light of your salvation, we come and we confess our sins. We confess that we have trusted in the great army. We have trusted in the war horse. We have trusted in human strength and ingenuity. We have looked for our salvation in the ways of the world, in wealth, in education, in homes, and in things. And so we pray as your people, forgive us. Forgive us of our sins. Teach us the way of repentance. We ask that you would teach us to walk in faith, that we might always look to you and you alone. We pray that you would set forth the vanity of all idols, that you would show us that the war horse cannot save and the great armies are worthless. Show us the excellencies of the, of the gospel. Show us again of the great deeds of your son and of the, the powerful work of your spirit. Show us these great things. We need to see them again. And Father, we, we long We desperately long to see your salvation in our midst. As we gather now, we long to see you work salvation right here in our presence, in our hearts, in our lives. 
And we long to see the salvation spill out of this place and into our city. Oh, Father, we long to see disciples made. We long to see sinners turn from idols and worship you. We long to see our city glorify your son and speak of his wonder and his deeds, saying, this Jesus is indeed glorious. We long to see our city sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so we look to you. We look to you. Our soul waits for you to work. You are our hope for salvation, and only by your might can these things happen. And so we cast ourselves upon you. Your word says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help in our shield. So we trust in you. Father, we come to your word now, and we are so thankful that you've given us the scriptures, that you teach us week in and week out. Father, we pray now that you would work through your word, that you would open our eyes, that you would give us understanding and knowledge, that you would make us wise. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So we're going to do something a little bit different this Sunday. We usually just have one scripture passage. We're going to have two. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, open them up. And so turn to Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 18, and stick your finger there. So we're going to be working on Daniel chapter 7 this morning. And then open up, flip to Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 27, and then stick your other finger there. So we're going to be flipping back and forth between these two passages. you're looking for Daniel, it's the first book after Ezekiel. So if you have your finger in Daniel chapter 7, we'll start reading in verse 9. So listen to God's word. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time." I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And him was given dominion and a glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him concerning the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. 
These four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So keep your finger there in Daniel chapter 7. We'll be returning to that passage and working through it. Turn to Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word now to us. So last weekend, we worked through the entirety of Mark chapter 13, and we made the argument, I made the argument, that Mark chapter 13 has been historically accomplished in Jesus' ministry. So we think about Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, and also in the events surrounding 70 AD when Rome came in, destroyed Jerusalem, and raised the temple to the ground. So if you missed the sermon last week, you should go back, listen to it. You can find it on our website or on our YouTube channel. What I'm going to do in the next few minutes is just quickly summarize what's in chapter 13 so that we're fresh with this chapter. So the chapter begins with Jesus' pronouncement that the temple is going to be destroyed. So verse 2, Jesus says, Do you see these great things? <clears throat> there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So the disciples hear what Jesus says and they're perplexed and and rightly so. The the temple was the central of Israel's life in terms of politics and in terms of the worship of God. They even thought that the temple was the very center of the world because that's where God dwelt. And so they asked Jesus, verse 4, well tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So when and what sign? Jesus hears their questions, but he doesn't immediately answer their questions. He looks at his disciples and he pastors them. He gives them two warnings. Verse 5, he says, see that no one leads you astray. And in verse 9, he says, be on your guard. And Jesus understands that after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, suffering, trouble, temptations are going to draw near to the church. Folks are going to come and say, I'm the Christ. Others are going to proclaim, the Christ is over there. Go out and follow him. But Jesus says, you need to remain faithful to me no matter what happens in the coming days. You need to endure to the end. So Jesus gives these warnings and then he starts giving them signs. Verse 10, he says, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And then he gives us a second sign in verse 14. He says, the abomination of desolation. And when the disciples, when the church observes these signs, they're to take decisive actions. They're to know that the wrath of God is coming upon the temple cult. And it's time to get out of Jerusalem. It's time to get out of Judea. Unless they're going to be caught up in this great conflict and likely die. So then in verses 24 through 27, Jesus explains what all of this means. When the disciples see all of these events, they're to understand something. They're to understand that Israel has come under the wrath of God. They're just like Babylon was in Isaiah 13. They're to understand that Jesus is the glorified son of man, that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
And they're to understand that a people will be gathered around Jesus to worship him forever. So we've worked through the text, and that's what we labored through last week. And last week, we used this illustration. We compared Mark chapter 13 to a a mountain range. Glorious, beautiful, mysterious, rugged. And we thought about our work as the work of a mountaineer. Our job is to climb up this mountain, to make our way up it, and then get to the top and look out and see. And we've done hard work. We did a lot of hard work last week. We, we scoured around in the Old Testament following the trail of Jesus' words where he points us out to. Then we compared Jesus' words with Paul's words, trying to figure out how were these men using these words in, in the first century. And then we looked at the historical record. We, we talked about this Syrian king named Antiochus who came into Jerusalem in 167, 168 B.C., So now it's our job. We've done that hard work. Now we get to stand at the top of the mountain and look out and see. And so what do we see? Well, we're going to ask two questions this morning. The first question has to deal with interpretation. So we're going to ask, well, how do we relate to each other in light of Mark 13? And the second question has to deal with the text, the two texts we read. And the question is, well, how do we relate to Jesus in light of Mark 13? So we'll start with the interpretive question, the question about interpretation. How should we relate to each other? So the reality is, if you spend any amount of time studying Mark chapter 13, if you crack open a few different commentaries, if you start reading some articles, if you listen to a few different sermons, you'll quickly realize that there are many different opinions on Mark 13 and how it should be understood. And, and so when you're faced with all of these differences, you ask, well, what happens to us when we disagree about Mark chapter 13? If there's all these opinions, it's, it's liable to happen here in our, in our congregation. Perhaps this is happening to you right now. Perhaps you carefully listened to last week's sermon You took notes, you went home, and then you looked up all the cross-references, and you followed Jesus' words back to the Old Testament, read them in context. Then you re-listened to the sermon again online, but but you're still not sold out on the historical position. And we ask, well, how should we relate to each other in the body of Christ? As we think about this, I think there are two common reactions that we're tempted to take when we we disagree about the Bible. First, we're, we're tempted to fight with each other. We're tempted to fight about our disagreement. So when our, our theology doesn't exactly line up with someone else's theology, we move towards that person with aggression. We rebuke them or we confront them. At other times, we, we fight and, and in our disagreements, we're, we, we, we blow up a bit and then we are tempted to withdraw. We say, well, you don't get along with me. We see that we're not matching up here. Maybe we should pull stakes and look for someone else who, who lines up with me theologically. And there's a second temptation as well where we're tempted to be apathetic about disagreement. So when our theology doesn't line up, when we see these differences, we just want to overlook them and move on with life. Instead of focusing on the disagreement, we focus on what we have in common. We might even say, well, this is all a mystery to me. These words are hard to understand. Maybe God doesn't even want us to understand what Mark chapter 13 is all about. Maybe it's just best to move on to chapter 14 and just forget about this. Now, as we think about these temptations, we have to realize that there's good and evil in both of them. If we give the best to these positions, we realize that there, are, there is some good to both of these. The person who fights may fight out of a, a sincere love for the truth of the Bible. They're, they're valiant for the truth, and they're going to hold it up regardless of the cost. And the person who, who slides more towards the apathetic and who wants to overlook disagreement might do that not because they have a distaste for the truth, 
but because they love the unity of the body of Christ. They want to see unity flourish. But we have to say both of these positions miss out on something in their present form. They miss out on something called wisdom. And so when we think about it, there are times when we need to fight about doctrine and not to fight about doctrine would be sinful. And we find this in the scriptures. For example, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul unsheathes his sword. He pulls his sword out and he's going to do some fighting. He says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So Paul's going to fight. And he's okay with that. But there are other times when Paul does something radically different. He extols the, the, patience of virtue, the, the virtues of, of patience and gentleness. He writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Paul says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So in Galatians, we find Paul going to war. Let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Then in the book of 2 Timothy, we, we find him lifting up the, these virtues of patience and, and gentleness. And we, we look at these two extremes in Paul's ministry and we ask, well, how, sh- how do we know when we should fight about doctrine and when we should persevere with patience and, and gentleness? It's an important question to ask for our life as a church. And so what we need to do is we need to practice something called theological triage. So triage is a word that comes from the hospital system. So when you go to the emergency room, when you go there, you meet a triage nurse. And this nurse at intake determines the care that you need and how urgent you need it. And so we think about this. A man with a heart attack goes into the emergency room and he receives different care than a man who goes in the emergency room with a broken finger. And as we think about the triage system, we think, well, this is a precious gift that God has given us. It's a good thing that these two men are treated differently. It would be a great disaster if they were treated the same way. It'd be a disaster if the man with the broken finger was seeing a doctor while the man with the heart attack was sitting in the waiting room. And so we think both of these men need care. We don't deny that. The man with the broken finger needs to have his finger straightened. He might need some pain medication. He might need it set. The man with a heart attack needs life-saving measures, perhaps surgery. But we understand one of these men needs care right away, and if he doesn't get it, he'll die, while the other man can wait. He can wait a few hours, and it won't affect his life in the long term. The triage system is, is waiting these situations. Someone's going to get care right away. Someone's not. And so as we think about this, we ask, well, what's making this system work? Well, what makes this system work so well is that person at the intake. That person at intake needs to be a wise person, meaning that person has knowledge and understanding. They're asking questions like, well, what are the symptoms and what do these symptoms mean? How threatening is this condition and what kind of care is needed here? So as we think about it, the same principles carry over for our life together in Christ as a body. So we're called to love God's word, all of God's words. Whether we find those words in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, whether those words are really easy to understand or really hard to understand, whether those words are really controversial in our society or they're welcomed, we are people who are called to love God's word, every single word in the Bible. But at the same time, we are to hold on to the doctrines we find in the Bible differently. Not all doctrines in the Bible are to be held on in the same exact way. 
Think about it. We hold on to the doctrine of justification differently than we hold on to the doctrine of the millennium. We hold on to the doctrine of Christ's deity differently than we hold on to the doctrine of the spiritual gifts. And we have to say that is a precious good thing when that happens. What would happen if we held on to the doctrine of Christ's deity the same way we held on to our view of the spiritual gifts? Well, all of a sudden, we'd be making some sharp lines where sharp lines don't need to be drawn. We'd say, well, you hold a different view of the spiritual gifts. Are you even a Christian then? We say, well, that doesn't seem right. So as we think about theological triage, the success of theological triage is directly dependent on the practitioner of it. And so there's a call for us as God's people. We need to be a wise people, meaning that we need to have knowledge in understanding. And so as we think about our calling as God's people, we are a people who need to have knowledge. This means simply that we need to know what the Bible says. We need to know what it says about the great doctrines. We need to know what it says about creation, about fall, about sin, about salvation, about Christ, about God, about holiness, about life in the spirit, about the end of all things. And if we don't have knowledge about what the Bible says, what's going to happen to our life in Christ? What's going to happen to our church? Well, we're going to make a wreck of it if we don't know what the Bible says. So we need knowledge, but we also need understanding. And understanding gets at the idea of how all of these things fit together. So it's one thing to know about, let's say, sin, but it's another thing to know about how the doctrine of sin fits in light of the rest of the Christian story. So it's one thing to know sin by itself, but it's another thing to know sin in light of creation, in light of redemption, than in light of the end of the story, what we call consummation, when Christ makes everything new. And we need to have that relationship. We need to understand sin in light of the whole picture. Also, we need to understand how we apply a doctrine to the Christian life. How does this fit with me as I live day to day? And so if we don't have understanding, if we don't know how doctrine fits with the rest of Scripture and fits with our lives, what's going to happen? Well, we're going to make a mess out of our church. And so we can get practical here. What happens when we disagree about Mark chapter 13? Think about this. What happens when we disagree about Mark chapter 13? There might be some of us here who disagree about Mark chapter 13. Should it disrupt our fellowship in the Lord? Should we separate over it? Should we rebuke each other about it? I hold, the, I hold the historical position. You might hold the future position. Should I come to you and say, you must repent? Or should we just shrug our shoulders and say, well, let's move on to chapter 14. That looks interesting. So if we operate with wisdom, I think we'll find something like this. Whatever view we take on Mark chapter 13, whether it be future, mixed, or historical, it doesn't impinge on the central superstructure that we find in the scriptures. We don't find it overthrowing our doctrine of creation, our doctrine of sin, our doctrine of salvation, our doctrine of the church. So we're not going to rebuke each other or separate from each other over it. We don't hold on to our interpretation of Mark chapter 13 like we hold on to our understanding of justification by faith or our understanding of Christ's deity or our understanding of the Trinity. We understand that there can be indeed diversity of opinion in the body of Christ and we can still fellowship together. We can still work together. We can still covenant together as one people. But that's just one side of theological triage. There's another side. Because we love God's word, every single word in the Bible We want to understand it. We want to apply it. We want to work away at it. And just because there's diversity of opinion, 
doesn't mean that there isn't a right answer. There is indeed one answer. Only one view is right. They all can't be right. And so what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we dialogue with each other. That means that we might even disagree with each other. But it means we sharpen each other and we press into each other and we learn how to grow into the scriptures as a body, as we're called to, to do as one people. And so we ask the question, well, how do we relate to each other in light of Mark 13, especially when we disagree? Well, the call is theological triage, which is essentially a call, we need to be wise. We need to be a wise people of how we understand this doctrine in our fellowship. So that's the first question. It's very practical. The second question is this, well, how do we relate to Jesus? And now we're going to deal directly with the text before us. So we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And I think we can compare the Gospel of Mark to an art gallery. If you've gone to an art gallery, you walk in and on the walls they have placed portraits, works of art. And you move throughout the gallery and you move from portrait or, or work of art to work of art. And the Gospel of Mark is much like an art gallery. We, we move through this, this great art gallery seeing portrait of Jesus after portrait of Jesus after portrait of Jesus. Let's just remind ourselves of what we've seen of Jesus. We've witnessed Jesus forgive a man's sins, and then we heard Jesus proclaim, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then we saw Jesus heal a man on the Sabbath, and in that context, Jesus announced, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We've witnessed Jesus preaching and teaching in Galilee, and we've heard him say things like this, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And then we've heard him say, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. We've witnessed Jesus in the middle of the storm and we've heard him say, peace be still. We've witnessed Jesus transfigured on top of a mountain with Moses and Elijah flanking both of his sides and we've heard the Father speak about him saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. What do we find in Mark's gospel? We find that this Jesus we meet has staggering authority. His authority over sin, his authority over sickness, his authority over the calendar, his authority over the kingdom of God, his authority over nature, his authority even over the greatest prophets of Israel, Moses and Elisha. But we have to understand all of these scenes are building. They're all preparing us to see something greater. They're preparing us to see Jesus' authority over all things. And so we come to another portrait in Mark's art gallery of Jesus. And at the very heart of Mark chapter 13 is verse 26, and I think this is the main point of the text. I think this is the, the point where everything revolves around this verse. And in verse 26, Jesus says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So this verse comes from Daniel chapter 7. That's why we read it as we began. And we just looked briefly at it last weekend. And what we're going to do is look closer at it because there are riches here for us in this text. So if you have your Bible, if you still got your finger in Daniel chapter 7, turn back there because we're going to work through Daniel chapter 7. So we're going to start in verse 9. So Daniel has this vision and he sees something. He tells us what he sees. He says, as I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So what's happening here? Well, it's a glorious scene. 
thousands, ten, tens and tens thousands, it's, it's a, a number that we can hardly conceive, is, is gathered together. What's happening here? Well, the, the court is in session, Daniel's telling us. The God of Israel is picking up the gavel. He's taking his seat at the judge's bench, and he's going to enter into judgment. He's going to pass out a verdict. And so as we read these verses, this naturally leads us to, to ask a set of questions. And we ask, well, who is the God of Israel going to judge and what is he going to say? What verdicts are he, is he going to give out? And so we find two verdicts as we read on in Daniel chapter 7. We find the first verdict in verses 11 and 12. And the God of Israel condemns, he judges the godless nations of the world. Listen to what Daniel says. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So Daniel makes clear, when the Ancient of Days takes his judgment seat, he's going to judge the beasts, which means he's going to judge the godless nations. Their time of ruling is going to be passed. And the key word, the key phrase to, to key in on is their dominion was taken away. They're not going to rule anymore, Daniel says. But there's also a second judgment, and Daniel tells us about this in verses 13 and 14. And this judgment is different than the first. It's a, a vindication the account is going to be set right. So Daniel writes, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So Daniel makes clear when the Ancient of Days takes his judgment seat, there's going to be a great upheaval in the world. The godless nations who have ruled over the earth and have ravaged the people of God are going to be taken away. They're going to be stripped of their power. But there's something else that's going to happen. There's going to be a man, a son of man, is going to come. And his rule is going to be unlike any other rule in human history. Daniel tells us about it. This man will not just rule for a season or a time in history. No, Daniel says his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And this man's rule will not be susceptible to failure. Daniel says his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And this man will not just rule over one part of the earth or one people group or one geographical area. No, Daniel says all people, nations, and languages will serve him. So as we look at this text, we cannot overstate what it's saying. As Israel would have read Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7, they would have said, this is our dream for the world. This is our hope. This is what we are living for, that this great upheaval would come, that the God of Israel would take his judgment seat, that the godless nations would be cast down, that the Son of Man would be lifted up, and he would share the kingdom with all of us. So as we read Daniel chapter 7, we, we have to ask the question, well, who is this son of man? Who is this glorious figure who's going to bring in this great reversal of all things? And as we look at Mark chapter 13, the answer is so clear. It is the man Christ Jesus. So we've looked at Daniel chapter 7, and now we need to make a connection. We need to connect all the dots. We need to connect Daniel chapter 7 to Mark chapter 13. So as we look at Mark chapter 13, Mark chapter 13 is the longest speech of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. It's the longest. It's the most red ink you find in your Bible in the gospel of Mark. And this is readers of the Bible, especially as we study 
this chapter makes us scratch our heads a bit. Jesus is speaking here in length. This must be really important for us. We have to pay attention here. More importantly, this chapter contains Jesus' last instructions, essentially before his death. We'll hear Jesus talk more in chapter 14, but this is, this is the last significant instruction Jesus gives his disciples. And so what I think Jesus is doing here is he's inviting us to read his passion account, what we find in chapter 14, 15, and 16, through the lens of Daniel chapter 7. And what Jesus is saying is that the dreams of Israel are coming true in me, but in the most unexpected way, in my death, my resurrection, and my ascension into heaven. And so I think Jesus is preaching something like this to us. If we make these connections between Daniel 7 and the Passion account, Jesus is saying, think about this, my friends, my disciples. I'm going to be surrounded by the beasts of this earth. And in their rebellion against God, they're going to surround me on every side. They're going to rage and they're going to roar. They're going to condemn. They're going to kill me. The Son of Man is going to be handed over. The Son of Man is going to suffer. The Son of Man will die. But don't be alarmed. Dear friends, this is all according to the plan. I've told you it three times so far. And it was written about me in Daniel chapter 7. But get this. When you see all of this, when you observe my death, my resurrection, my ascension to the right hand of the Father, what you are seeing is actually the defeat of the ungodly nations. In these events, the the Ancient of Days is taking his judgment seat and he's passing out the two verdicts. He is stripping the ungodly nations of their power. And when you observe my death, my resurrection, my ascension, what you are seeing is a glorification of the Son of Man. What you are looking at is my enthronement as the King over all things. My friends, when you observe my death, my resurrection, my ascension, what you are observing is the end of the world as it once existed. You have to understand this. The world will never be the same after I die, after I raise, after I'm ascended to the right hand of the Father, everything will be different. And you need to understand this. When you observe my death, my resurrection, my ascension, what you are seeing is the world to come. You are seeing my enthronement. I am the sovereign ruler over all things. This is how Jesus wants us to understand all that we find in chapters 14, 15, and 16. In these events, the Ancient of Days is taking his judgment seat He's giving out these two verdicts. The nations are being cast down and the Son of Man is being lifted up and glorified. Now as we think about this, this isn't new or novel. What's so interesting is that when the apostles, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, when they preach about Jesus' passion account, all that happens to Jesus and his death, resurrection, ascension, they talk like, what Jesus just told us. They talk in these Danielic terms. They, they, they preach about the reversal of all things. They preach about a, a new king who has taken his throne. And when we look to the rest of the New Testament, we find the apostles confirming what we just did here, making this connection between Daniel 7 and Mark 13 and how we're to understand the Passion account. So listen to what the apostles say. When Paul considered the the passion of Jesus, when Jesus humbled himself and went to a cross, Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter two. He says, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
What is Paul doing? Well, he he looks at the death of Jesus and what happens after that and he says, what's happened? Well, Jesus Christ is the true ruler of all all things. Daniel chapter seven has come to fulfillment in Jesus' death and resurrection. And Paul's not alone. The rest of the apostles do this. John does the same thing when he considers Jesus' death and resurrection. He writes this in Revelation chapter five. He writes, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He's connecting the dots for us. The author of Hebrews does the same thing. When he thinks about Jesus' death, he makes this connection in Hebrews chapter one. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. And catch this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And Peter joins in as well. Peter has to talk about this when he preaches in Acts chapter two to the great crowds. He connects all the dots. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What are the apostles doing? Well, they're connecting the dots. They're seeing the hopes and dreams of Israel that we find in Daniel chapter seven, that the nations will be cast down, that the son of man will be lifted up and he'll share his kingdom with the saints. That's happened and it happened in the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's happened. So the question is, well, how do we relate to Jesus in light of what we learn here in Mark chapter 13? I think we learned this. Mark chapter 13, especially what we find in verse 26, adds precious texture to our relationship with Jesus. Precious texture. So when we take up the, faith, when we take up the instruments of faith and repentance, we find in the gospel the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Meaning when we, when we come to Jesus in the gospel, we find all of our sins forgiven. We find all of our transgressions cleared. We find all of our impurities cleansed. We find a glorious salvation. When we come to Jesus in the gospel, we find the humility of Jesus. We find the suffering servant who undergoes the wrath of God for us. We have to say that this is exceedingly precious, glorious. But we also must say that this is not all that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is more to this gospel In light of Mark chapter 13, verse 26, we can say this. When we take up the instruments of faith and repentance, we find in the gospel the son of man who comes upon the clouds with great power and glory. When we come to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we we find the son of man who serves and we find the son of man who's glorified. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that when we come to Jesus, we find ourselves bending low on our knees, confessing Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This means when we come to Jesus, we find ourselves numbered among God's redeemed who sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and and honor and glory and blessing. This means when we come to Jesus, we find the one of whom Daniel spoke And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In the gospel, we find the unimaginable humility of Jesus. We find the suffering servant. But also in the gospel, the same word, we find the unimaginable glory and authority of Jesus. Here we find the son of man who receives the kingdom of God 
for all time. And brothers and sisters, does this not deepen our relationship with Jesus? Does this not give us precious texture? The gospel calls us to teach, calls us to to call Jesus both our Savior and our Lord. The gospel teaches us to call Jesus both our, our friend and our master. The gospel of Jesus calls, calls us to teach, call Jesus both our propitiation and our king. It teaches us to call Jesus both a lowly servant and the exalted son of man. And we learn about ourselves in this gospel. We learn that we are both beloved by Jesus. He serves us. He washes our feet. And we also learn that we are his slaves. We belong to him. He is our supreme master. We learn that we are forgiven and that we are also his subjects, unworthy subjects at that. And so we need to see both aspects of the gospel. We need to see the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we need to see the Son of Man who comes upon the clouds with great power and glory. We need the whole picture if we're to live to Jesus faithfully. And so may we learn as God's people how to live in light of this picture we see in Mark chapter 13, verse 26. Jesus is the Son of Man who comes upon the clouds with great power and glory. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for how it teaches us We're so thankful that you have opened up the glory of Jesus to us, that he is the Son of Man, the glorious Son of Man, and he has entered into his glory. And he stands glorified at your right hand. Oh, Father, would you teach us how to live in light of this great portrait? Teach us what it means to call Jesus Master and Lord. Teach us what it means to be a slave and what it means to be a subject. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.